You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dunnis, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, are you going to make it through this week's co-main event podcast? It's kind of up in the air right now. It's touch and go right now. Yeah. You have come into my house dragging a sled full of sickness behind you. Yeah, and... Just want to put your mind at ease. I plan to cough on as many things as I can here today, beginning with this microphone many times throughout this episode. I also thought this might be the perfect week to debut that new segment uh, that we kept talking about, the one where we eat an ice cream cone together on the air. I mean, like, this might be the best week for that. See, I know that you... I'm not t- trying to make it weird. I'm not, like, saying, well, like, I'll hold the ice cream and then we'll both eat at the same... Like, I'll, I'll take a bite, you take a bite. It'll be good radio. One milkshake, two straws? Yeah. That kind of thing? Uh-huh. I know you would take some sort of perverse happiness in getting me sick and coming over here and spreading your germs just everywhere. I don't know what it is. It just brings me joy. Here's the thing, though. Joke's on you, motherfucker, because I'm already sick. <laughs> well, I guess you got me there. That's how it works, right? You Once you have a sickness, you can't get another one. You know, I am not a doctor, but I'm pretty sure right, that's yeah, how it works. That is, that's definitely how it works. I was Last week, when both my daughters were dealing with colds, and I was reading a bedtime story to my daughter, and she coughed on my face as my mouth was open, like as I was reading aloud to her, like from like six inches away, coughed on my face to where I could feel like the mist in the cough spray, like right directly in my face. And I was like, well... I feel like I can see my immediate future just mapped out right in front of me. And now here we are. Right now, I'm that uh, the meme of that guy tapping his, his head to show how smart he is. <laughs> yes. Can't get sick if you're already sick. Yep, there you go. This episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is once again brought to you in part by Fulton & Rourke. Have we told you about Fulton & Rourke's fabulous 2-in-1 shampoo and body wash? I just used it myself this morning, and it is awesome. You know what I did with my old shampoo? I threw it away. What? Actually, that's not true. What I did was I put it in the cabinet to use it for emergency situations. Yeah, you never know. You would run out, get out of the shower dripping wet, grab that shampoo. But the point is, it can't hang with the Fulton Rourke stuff, with this, which is specifically formulated using rosemary extract, vitamin B5, and caffeine to give it a uniquely invigorating fragrance while leaving your hair and skin looking and feeling good long after you've stepped out of the shower. Right, Ben? Smelling pretty good this week, aren't I? I cannot smell a single thing. But Fulton and Rourke's latest greatest solid cologne is going like hotcakes right now over at FultonRourke.com. That's called the Sterling, which features notes of tobacco, leather, and vanilla. Like all Fulton and Rourke fragrances, it comes in a heavy-duty refillable metal container that will go anywhere, from your gym bag to your pocket to your leather fanny pack, if you happen to be a touring pro wrestler. Of course, like we told you last week, our exclusive promotional code is back in service over there at the website. It's real easy to use. Just go to FultonandRourke.com, load up your cart with Great stuff, and then enter the code CME at checkout to get 15% off your first order. That's FultonandRourke.com, built for the way guys operate. We got music again this week from our guy, The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear, you can check him out on Twitter at The Fifth Element or Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element or SoundCloud.com slash The Fifth Element official. And as always, that's the word the with an A. 
If you enjoy the co-main event podcast, you can do, do us a serious solid by rating, reviewing, or subscribing to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever platform you listen to it on. That stuff does help our ranking and our rating. So lend us a hand if you've got a few minutes and write us a review. Yeah, Chad, I know you love you some public radio. Oh, for sure. All things considered, that's my jam. Yeah, and see me... Uh, I pretty much wait all week for Campaign Beat featuring Sally Mock. That's on, a local uh, show. Yeah, Montana Public Radio. But you know how they do on NPR when they're running like a pledge drive, right? How they just like will keep annoying you and interrupting the regular programming so they can make the case for why you should give them money? Yeah, I hate that. Yeah, see, we're not going to do that here except for you know what I'm actually doing right now. Yeah, this but, exact moment. Yeah, except for this moment now. Now. But as of this recording, Chad, I looked – on Patreon.com, we're sitting at 181 patrons for the Co-Main Event Podcast. And we love them like they are our own children. That's true. It's true, even if it makes them uncomfortable. But 200 would be a nice round number, would it not? It would, but Ben, that would mean 19 more people listening to our voices would have to dig deep into their pockets for five American dollars. That's right. I mean, slightly fewer than 20 people would have to donate roughly a buck 25 per episode, which actually seems quite reasonable now that I put it like that. And when they do that, when we hit 200 patrons, Chad, then it's giveaway time. Tell them what we got. We got all kinds of stuff, Ben. If we hit 200 patrons here in the, in the near future, we can give away uh, a couple of fabulous Fulton and Rourke prize packs that come in the military spec Dop kit that we've told people about on, on previous episodes, a couple of bags stuffed with Fulton and Rourke product. We could give away hardback copies of Champion of the World. Still got those sitting around here, huh? Signed by the author and maybe another guy. I don't know, depending on how comfortable everyone feels with that. But then this table's going to be all unsteady. You take that out there. We got a bunch of extra large sized MMA shirts. Just <laughs> Sure we do. Just a bunch of them. A farmer's grip. That's right. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash co-main event, sign up, become a friend of the podcast, fill our hearts with joy, and then the giveaways can begin. If we hit 200 patrons... We're going to start giving stuff out. Even if you don't want it. We're randomly? We're just going to send it to your house. Just randomly. give it out randomly? Absolutely so randomly. I assume that there is a mechanism inside the Patreon where we can pick, figure out people's real names. But I'm just going to say, uh, this might it might behoove you to give to the Patreon under your real name so we don't end up sending a bunch of prize packs to already rich English footballers. That's right. Those people don't need the prize packs. Yeah, they'll, they'll open up the mail one day, realize they have an extra-large Josh Barnett t-shirt that was made circa 2005, and wonder what the hell's going on. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Stipe Miocic is the greatest <laughs> UFC heavyweight champion of all time. We'd love to get a comment from him about it, but his post-fight interview just sounds like a blender full of lug nuts. And in round number two, Daniel Cormier is great. Can we say that now? Because Daniel Cormier is fucking great. And in round number three, can't Rory McDonald have one fight where he doesn't come out with some terrible grisly injury? No, he can't. Okay, we'll take what we can get. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me? How's this? Tips for the well-rounded fight fan. Been a while. And just saying stuff, but first, like we always do about this time. Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Josh Montgomery. He writes, Something that I think went a little under the radar in the double fight weekend was UFC sneaking in a little $5 raise to the pay-per-view price. Coming off what has been reported as sinking pay-per-view buy rates year over year, are they just going to try to milk the shit-eating wild men who buy every pay-per-view no matter what uh, to make up some losses? I can say as someone who had a damn near 95% purchase rate for about a decade... 
uh, that is down to around 60 or 70% these days, it is only going to lower my chances of buying. I think that it is especially bad timing with that UFC 221 lineup staring us in the face next. Your thoughts? An answer to the question, are they just going to try to milk the shit-eating wild men? Yes. Yeah, that, they are. That is the they answer. Are. That they, they have decided, you know what? They can get you this way. They're going to go ahead and try to get you. Now, we've been around long enough, Ben, that we have seen the UFC pay-per-view price just creep up a little bit at a time, you know, over the years. I can't remember when it was that they made the $10 jump. 2015, I think. They did it right before a big event, right? right. Where it was like, are they just doing it for this event and then it's going to go back to what it was before? Or is this permanent? Uh, and clearly it turned out that, that it was permanent. Now we've jumped up another five uh, to, what is it? It's sixty four ninety nine, I believe. And that's before fees, right? That's just what you're paying out straight to the pay-per-view provider. I had a moment on Saturday afternoon when I was thinking about UFC 220 and and like I th- I don't think I'm just speaking for myself here. I was really only interested in those last two fights. Like the co-main event Daniel Cormier versus Volkan Ozdemir and then the main event obviously Stipe Miocic against Francis Ngannou. Uh and like if this wasn't my job, I don't know that I would have shelled out 65 bucks for this pay-per-view. And this was a pretty good UFC pay-per-view. So like if that's the psycholo- so the psychology of me guy who gets paid to write about mixed martial arts fighting i can only imagine that like uh the lukewarm fan might think twice before shelling out that much money to to get one of these ufc pay-per-views that are not stacked from top to bottom especially if so i've been told there are other ways to watch a ufc pay-per-view other than just ordering it from your cable provider and paying the money don't know i could don't i couldn't know what you mean right now that's right but i'm told from some well-placed sources that people do find ways to watch these without actually paying their cable provider. And if you're looking to give those people more of a, like a justification for what they're doing, just kind of randomly raising the price is a good way to do it, especially because price is already pretty high. When you think about what people in other countries are charged to watch the same events, when you think about just like the, the quality differential between events being so wildly varying, and then you just come out once and say like, all right, now it's $5 more. We offer no real justification for why that is. Like, it just makes people kind of mad. And I, I think that comes across in this question here from Josh Montgomery, where it's just kind of like, if you already feel like, hey, I don't watch as many of these things as I used to, or like I, the requirements of keeping up to date on pay-per-views are getting kind of onerous and the what I'm being given isn't always worth the price, and then you, you increase the price without any real good reason, just kind of trying to quietly do it. Like, you show up on the... the page at your dish network and it says it's five dollars more i can see how like just as the buyer there's some part of you that wants to kind of rebel against that you know what sent up a red flag in my brain from this past year was when uh mcgregor versus mayweather was a hundred bucks yeah because i could just picture ufc executives sitting in their offices and like you know, getting the email from Showtime or whatever, that how much this was going to cost or whatever, the meeting where they had to go to figure out how much they were going to charge for this pay-per-view and finding out it was going to be a hundred bucks and just being like, oh, really now? Write that down on a post-it note, stick it on the wall for later. Do you think we're going to hit a time where, or maybe we've already hit it, I don't know, that the the average UFC pay-per-view costs 65 bucks and then you get Conor McGregor out there or you get maybe John Jones or the return of a Brock Lesnar or a Ronda Rousey and suddenly these UFC pay-per-views are a hundred bucks you know it's possible I guess if you get a big enough event that you can do it but I think that right now the trend seems to be 
yeah, you can charge 100 bucks for a huge pay-per-view event, but what I suspect the UFC is going to figure out is what that the pay-per-view business in general seems to be trending that it's like a feast or famine kind of thing. The big ones can be massive. But I think as we move on into like a new media consumption age, it's going to be harder and harder to do a $60, much less a $65 kind of mid-level pay-per-view. I think more and more pay-per-views is going to be a thing that you can do it only for the most massive things and it just won't be long-term sustainable for stuff that's just kind of in the middle. I think the UFC has really benefited from like the shitting wild men who have just kind of gotten used to it. Like well, I, once a month I buy a pay-per-view or like, you know, chip in with my friends on a pay-per-view or go to a bar for a pay-per-view or something. But if you were charging more and not giving more, I don't think it's going to be able to be something that you do for the foreseeable future. If you were Ben Folks, regular old fan and not Ben Folks, MMA junkie writer who probably turns in an expense report at the end of the month, gets his pay-per-view money back. Would you pay ninety nine ninety nine or whatever for Conor McGregor's next fight? Let's say it's McGregor versus Habib Nurmagomedov. We do it over in Russia. Uh, a spider lady is going to drop out of the ceiling. There's going to be sword dancing. Uh, sword dancing. Yeah. Uh, would you Would you pay a hundred bucks to watch Conor McGregor's next fight? Depends. Is the press box showing it? Uh, Local Missoula, Montana sports bar, the press box. Let's say no. I think it's pretty hard to find a, a, a tavern around this town anymore that will show the UFC. Huh. And is is Nurmi versus McGregor pretty much the only good fight on that card? I, I don't know, man. I didn't think this whole thing through. Come on. I didn't come up with a whole fantasy card. Build your hypothetical with a little bit of detail. Make it a rich world that I can believe in. Are you going to answer this question, or do I have to like build a whole card right in front of you between two? Let's say that there's a, a the curtain jerker is a fight between... Two guys you've never heard of. Uh, okay. Maybe there's a women's flyweight fight on there. Naturally. Uh, and then the co-main event is Francis Ngannou against Brock Lesnar. Okay, yeah, I'm paying 100 bucks for that. Okay, but what if it's just what if it's just McGregor and, and Nurmi? And then like a regular old co-main event. I'm going to try to get some people together, see if we can all chip in on this. And if not, I will get a set of binoculars and watch it through a neighbor's window. Next question this week comes to us from Neville S. He writes, listening to Big John McCarthy on commentary this weekend. Yeah, I watched Bellator. What of it? I thought he did a good job. His play-by-play was good and engaging, showing his obvious depth of technical knowledge, although his post-fight interviews were a little bit awkward. Mike Goldberg, however, is over there pulling out Rory McDonald anecdotes from goddamn 2010. What did you <laughs> think of Big John? And isn't it a bit damning when a guy on his day, on his, uh, on his first day on the job outshines such a quote-unquote experienced pro? Uh, I thought Big John McCarthy, although uh, I guess in fairness, I will admit I have not watched all of the Bellator card yet. Uh, but from what I've seen, I thought he did a remarkable job, especially for day one, walking in. Clearly, he got the memo that uh, a, U- a MMA color-, color commentator needs to show up in a black dress shirt with the top two buttons unbuttoned. Yeah, if you don't look like you're going to a club right after this, then you have no business being an MMA commentator, apparently. But I thought I thought John McCarthy did a great job from what I've seen. Uh, you know, the the only post-fight interview that I've watched from him so far is the Chael Sonnen one, where Sonnen's out there cutting superstar Billy Graham promos. But at the same time, I thought Big John handled it well. Uh, I don't know, man. I thought, like, considering he's a rookie, just out there making his first performance, uh, it seemed like he had a pretty good natural chemistry with Mike Goldberg. I thought that... that uh, that he kind of passed with flying colors. Yeah, I thought he did well, too. I guess I was just not surprised, as we talked about before on the podcast, having interviewed him a few times. 
he seemed to me like he would be somebody who would fit right into that role. And I'm sure that there will be some things that he could uh, learn from and grow. I, I feel like the post-fight in-cage interview is really tricky for people to do. And especially, it's just tricky, like, if you have never really interviewed people as part of your job, that's a, a skill that needs to be developed. I Sometimes I want to sit down and write, like, interview tips based on the, like, probably thousands of interviews with MMA fighters I have done. And many of them disastrously because I was doing the wrong things, especially for like that short window of time on like the in cage on TV interview. Cause I feel like there's a few common mistakes people make. Like the one is just saying something enthusiastically. That's not like a question and doesn't really lend itself to a response and then shoving the microphone in the guy's face. Cause he's already kind of flustered given like the adrenaline and everything that's going on. And they often do something like that, and then it's like there's an uncomfortable lull where the guy figures out only because the microphone has moved from your mouth to his that you expect him to say something now. Yeah, uh, when you get into this interview game for a while, you reach a point. It's like uh, sometimes I find myself almost outthinking myself when I'm trying to get ready for an interview because I've done so many of them, particularly with MMA fighters, that when I write a question down – I already know you can, you can see it in your head how the, the fighter is going to answer that question. And so you start trying to re-diagram them. Like, uh, I'm trying to think of an example. Like, uh, you kind of can't ask this, this, this isn't always true, but like, if you ask a fighter, if you ask fighter X, what do you expect from upcoming opponent fighter Y? They will almost always say like, well, it doesn't matter what fighter Y is going to do. It's all about what fighter X is going to do. And I'm going to go out there and impose yeah. my will and yada, yada, yada. The other option is I'm expecting the best version of him. I'm preparing right. for the best version of him. So it's like after you do this a bunch of times and you know, especially if you're doing like a 10-minute stock UFC pre-fight interview where you know this fighter is just doing interview after interview after interview, it almost starts to feel like, I'm not, I can't even ask him that question. Like, I need to think of something else because well, I already know where this is going. But the advantage we have is that if we're doing a 10 minute interview and we really need two to three decent quotes to build a story around, uh, we can afford for some of the answers to be total shit. Yeah. And they can stay in the drawer. They can stay on the recorder, so to speak, there. So, uh, we can afford to do the thing, which I have learned is a good trick for some of those is to, tr when you try to keep an answer or like a question as, open-ended and as kind of vague as you can, it forces them to fill in a lot of blanks right. and even fill in a lot of blanks with what you mean because they assume that you know what you're talking about. You're doing the interview. And so like you kind of give them the space to wander around in and they will sometimes stumble into something interesting uh, or they'll, you know, that's how you'll find out what's really on their minds is because that's where their minds will go in that moment. In the post-fight interview though, you need it all to be kind of usable. The, what you really want to do kind of there is like, Tell me about like the fight or the finish or whatever. If there was like a special moment in the thing, who do you want next? Like those are kind of the two things you got to hit. Yeah, I'm I'm actually frequently surprised how well the post fight interview comes off because as I've said before on this show, like you're sticking a microphone in front of these fighters' faces after they have just fought, you know, fifteen or twenty five minutes. Sometimes uh, their nervous systems are probably shot. They're physically shot. They're mentally exhausted. Uh, and and then you start firing questions at them. Like sometimes you get interesting stuff and sometimes obviously you do not, but I'm, I'm always kind of uh, surprised when it's just not a complete train wreck. Because if you asked me three questions after I did three sets of 10 on the bench press, I would probably like, get out of here, man. Let me, let me have my water. Let me have my protein <laughs> shake and then get back to me. Well, and you'll remember though, it wasn't always so easy. You remember the days of talking us through the Mickey's replay. That's true. Yeah. So, which still happens. Well, like the talk us through this replay is still pretty. 
It's a go-to move. Really? It used to be like every single time. They don't do the, as much the talk us through as replay. Usually sometimes they'll kind of play the replay while we're talking. But yeah, it used to be talk us through the replay followed by 10 seconds of dead air. Whew, I feel like we digressed here this from is, the original This is a fun question. digression, at least for us. Next question comes to us from Dolby Whitehouse. No, oh, not a real that's name. That's totally a person. He writes, guys, who is the UFC lightweight champion asking for a confused friend and that friend's name is Dana White. Ooh, Dolby Whitehouse. Throwing heaters, scorchers out here. You know how to cut right to the core of the issue. Uh, yeah, that's weird, right? That whole press conference on Friday was weird. Because you come out there and you tell us, all right, big news. Tony Ferguson, Habib Nurmagomedov, going to be fighting for the real lightweight title in May. Uh, I believe it's May. May or April. Something sure. like that. Yeah, uh, go for it. UFC Spring 223. Time. Spring time. In the spring. Going to be fighting for the real lightweight title, which then makes us wonder, okay, what about the lightweight champion, Conor McGregor? And in his answers, everything Dana White said seemed like the stuff you would say when you're explaining why you've decided to strip the guy of the title. Like, he's saying he might not be back until the fall, so then that's two years. The division has to move on. It's only fair to these guys. That sounds like stripping him of the title. And yet Dana White made absolutely sure not to say he was doing that. Even when pressed by Ariel Helwani, he just instead got mad at Ariel like he does instead of answering the question. It seems it always seems weird to me that we get to these situations like we end up having the press conference before it seems like the company has really come up with the talking points, right? Like it seemed like if you were going to throw someone out there to answer questions from the media and throw a couple of fighters out there to answer questions from the media, you would already have like, here's our strategy. Here's how we're going to talk about this uh, vis-a-vis the 155 pound title. And sometimes it feels like we just don't have that. Like we're just winging it. Like we're just going to go out there. But why they had to know this was coming, right? They had to know this was going right. to be the response. Like there's, there's no reason to not have, you know, uh, some talking points that everyone can follow. Uh, and on the other end, this kind of seems like a, uh, we want to have our cake and eat it too thing for the UFC. Like we want to be able to promote, uh, Tony Ferguson against Habib Nurmagomedov as, as though it's for the undisputed real lightweight title. But we also don't want to strip Conor McGregor because we don't want to make Conor McGregor any more Henri to deal with than he already is. And, and I just don't know that you can have that, man. Nope, like you, you cannot. You have to uh, go one direction or the other. Well, because yeah, it seemed, then you get into the worst of both worlds because nobody's going to regard this as the real lightweight title just because you say so. And it's not like Conor McGregor is going to be super pleased at you for going out there and saying that the other belt is the real one. So you, you do exactly what you didn't want to do on both sides, and it doesn't seem like you actually accomplish anything. Like I said, people are going to watch the Nurmagomedov-Ferguson fight because it's an awesome fight and because it feels like two of the best lightweights in the world are going to go at it and you want to see who's left standing at the end of that. It's not like anybody who would have bought it if it were an interim title fight or even no title fight is going to suddenly be like, oh, what? Did Dana White say real title? Well, here, take my $65 now. No one is making a decision based on that. So it doesn't make any sense to me why you would create this problem for yourself and like, create this confusion just so you could sell it that way. Yeah, it would be awesome if they put real lightweight title on the poster. Then I would be like, well, wait a second. What was the last pay-per-view I bought for the lightweight title? Was that one real? When Conor McGregor fought Eddie Alvarez, was that for the real title? It should be real, but then in the background, there's Dana White doing the air quotes with his fingers. It's as real as it gets. Uh, and then I guess if they come out and strip Conor McGregor this week, then... They just didn't want a huge distraction the weekend of UFC 220. They didn't want every story to be about Conor McGregor and not about Stipe Miocic and, and Daniel Cormier. Yeah, I mean, you already kind of created the distraction for yourself a little bit by being so non... Like, you just made a really weird 
event out of this press conference to where afterwards, after the press conference, everybody was just talking about, wait, what were they trying to pull there? And that already distracted from your fight announcement, which is an awesome fight. Last question this week comes to us from Gary Lane. Now, is, it, is that Gary Lane, the former profession, American professional football player, or is that Gary Lane, the chess player? Uh, I'm going to go chess player here because okay. this is a good question, even though I, I believe it is all one sentence. So I'm going to try to do it justice oh, nice. the way it's written on the page. All right, let's hear it. Guys, Jock Array versus Derek Brunson is this weekend, followed by a UFC headlined by Leota Machida versus that one Alabama football player dude, followed by a pay-per-view headlined by Athlete Surfer versus the Cuban Muscle Crisis. That's really catching on, mm-hmm. Cuban muscle crisis. Followed by an event headlined by a cowboy versus a Medeiros, and then in parentheses, sorry, Yancey. Followed by an event headlined by Josh Emmett, who, versus Lil Heathen J. Stevens. Shit, 2018 is going to be a lot like 2017, isn't it? Okay, that was two sentences. There's a yeah. period after Stevens there. Got us a slammer at the end. Yeah. Nicely done there by chess master Gary Lane. Uh, is this a valid point? Are you starting to get a little bit worried about how these UFC events are stacking up at the beginning of 2018 here that we might have, uh, quote unquote, another down year that then the UFC comes out at the end of it and announces it was the greatest fucking year of all time and you're all a bunch of noobs if you thought any different? Well, think about what would be like a big thing that could you could sell us right now to be a big pay-per-view. I mean, I think UFC 220 is probably going to be up there among the biggest pay-per-views of the year, depending on how the rest of the year shakes out. But to me, you're missing two pieces, both of which you would need to have a really huge event at this point, and it's Conor McGregor and John Jones. Like that's those guys are both somebody who you put them on a card with like a, a decent uh, fight, a decent undercard behind them, and that's when you're talking, you know, high six figures, maybe into the millions pay per view buys, depending on what you offer there. Everybody else, you're not basically. I mean, this one UFC 220 gonna do pretty well. Because uh, you had the the heavyweight title, but I, I mean, I would guess depending on who you do, if you do Stipe Miocic versus Fabricio Verdum next, you don't do anywhere near those kind of numbers again. So, uh, like you you have both those guys out. If you get one or both of them back, the whole year could change. If you don't, it won't. Yeah. Plus, I mean, uh, a lot of kind of gray area with with people like Brock Lesnar with people like the Diaz brothers Brock like, Lesnar's still suspended man he, right. he could come back you got to have to serve a suspension first but i'm just saying like second half of the year you could see some some stuff happen that could potentially make this a little bit brighter than we thought it was going to be. Uh, my colleague at Bleacher Report, Stephen Rondina, sent kind of an interesting email this week. I wanted to just reference a couple of things that that he floated out there, which I thought were kind of uh, interesting. That in the past, like the pay-per-view business for the UFC has been somewhat feast or famine, as you said before, that you have these big stars like Conor McGregor, Ronda Rousey, John Jones, Brock Lesnar, and they're sort of like uh, the 1% of the pay-per-view world. They sell huge pay-per-views and that everybody else is kind of like a non-factor, right? We've seen that with Demetrius Johnson kind of barely uh, scratching the surface on the rare occasions when the UFC actually lets him try to try to sell a pay-per-view. What Rondina floated out there was the idea that maybe we're seeing the development of kind of like a pay-per-view middle class that we have people like Stipe Miocic, that we have people maybe like Daniel Cormier, like Chris Cyborg, uh, like a Max Holloway, perhaps, uh, maybe like a Tony Ferguson, Habib Nurmagomedov kind of person, a person that could like uh, reliably sell you maybe three hundred and fifty or four hundred and fifty thousand or hundred thousand pay per view buys, which used to be pretty shitty like three years ago. Yeah, that would be terrible. But at this point, like if you're the UFC and you have a a, a collection of people that can get you those kind of numbers, 
That's not a disaster. It's not the disaster that, that we predict that maybe the business is, is headed for. Okay, yeah, true. I mean, if you if you can get all those people to fight three times a year and do that for you three times a year, then maybe, yeah, you'll be okay. Uh, I guess, like, I wonder about stuff like, and a lot of people highlighted it, and it's mentioned here by Chessmaster Gary Lane, uh, Josh Emmett versus Jeremy Stevens as the headliner. That's on a Fox card, right? Which, does that make you wonder where we're headed, where things stand with Fox? We're not going to give you anything too good since we might be parting ways soon. Because that is not a great network TV headliner. For for ratings, no, it's not. Like, I no, think it's a good you, fight. I think you can think about it two different ways. Like, it's either Steve Austin flipping the double bird at Fox saying we're out of here, or like we're dealing with a drastically different uh, strategy for these Fox shows. Like, uh, Josh Emmett versus Jeremy Stevens, really high probability someone's going to get knocked the fuck out in that right. fight. So maybe we're just doing a totally different thing rather than try to put like a, a mid-range name in the main event of this Fox card to try to pull down as much ratings as we can. Maybe we're, we're throwing out a banger where the highlights are going to end up on SportsCenter. Everybody's going to shoot around a, an Instagram video of the, of the finishing sequence. Maybe we're just like, maybe we're doing a more guerrilla style, uh, marketing effort than we would if we could put Joanna Jacek or Demetrius Johnson in in the main event there. Like, does that make Fox happy? I don't know. But, like, uh, I think it's either one of those two things, right? Yeah, or you're just out of options for anybody else to put in there. That could also be. That's going to do it for this week's Listener Mail. If you have a question, comment, and concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says Email the Podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you are there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. While you're there, you can sign up for the Patreon so we can get to the 200 patrons level limit threshold. Not a limit. We can go past it. Oh, it's not a limit. Yeah, Yeah, I probably shouldn't say that. Uh, If we get there, we're going to start giving stuff away. So that would be awesome. Uh, Go to patreon.com slash co-main event to do that. As for right now, though, we are going to get started with round number one. That starts right now. So, Ben, Stipe Miocic essentially mops the floor with Francis Ngannou in the main event of UFC 220 this past weekend from TD Garden over there in Boston, Mass., and does so as the underdog UFC heavyweight champion. Uh, a lot of storylines emerging from this fight, and I, I hope that we can touch on as many of them as we can. I think for starters, since he deserves it, uh, what do you make of the performance here from Stipe Miocic, and how would you, you break down... Uh, the 25 minutes he spent in the cage out there with the uh, the previously sort of uh, amazing Francis Ngannou. Smart and disciplined. Yeah. That's how I would describe it. I mean, because you when you go up against a guy like that, especially early on in the fight, you really just can't afford any mistakes. And you saw a couple times where Francis Ngannou, he's throwing out there like he's trying to take Stipe's head off and came close a couple times. Uh, but Stipe did a really good job, I thought, of balancing the need to, you know, 
engage with him enough that you don't let him just stand there and tee off on you. Also getting him to spend a lot of what he had early on. Uh, but then wearing him down with the sense that like, hey, we're in here for a five-round fight, which is not something you see a whole lot of heavyweights able to really do, especially once they get in there and the leather starts flying. Uh, the impulse to try to fire back and land big shot of your own gets a lot of people in trouble. And Stipe did a really good job of just like sticking to a plan and finding a bunch of different ways to tire out Francis Ngannou. From, you know, he'll get him down on the ground, start working the body. Even when he couldn't get him down on the ground, just kind of leaning on the back of his neck, basically making it hard for him to breathe and just wearing him down with your own weight. All the little things designed to just take him into the later rounds, sap all his energy, make him less and less dangerous, and then knowing when to ramp up your own offense and get a little more aggressive going after him. Yeah, in the aftermath of this fight, I think you can see why Stipe Miocic felt a little overlooked leading up to it. Because now that we have seen the finished product, clearly he he knew that he was coming in here with a good game plan. Clearly he had faith in himself and his abilities to be able to go in there and get it done. And and it's a hindsight is twenty twenty sort of situation where you see like definitely the more polished, more complete mixed martial artists go out there and put together uh, a five round fight for Francis Ngannou. It was kind of a worst case scenario in terms of answering all of these questions that we had about his skill set leading up to this fight. You know, we wanted to know if he could land a big shot early that would keep Stipe Miocic from getting into a game plan. Obviously, he could not. We wanted to know if he would have the defensive wrestling to keep Stipe Miocic from taking him down. Obviously, he could not. We wanted to know if once Stipe Miocic got him down, if Ngana would be able to get back up. Obviously, he could not. And we wanted to know if he would have the the steam to go 25 minutes since he's been he's been ending all of these fights via amazing highlight reel first round knockout. And obviously, to the answer to that question is no. He was not ready for that either. So uh, not necessarily a make or break performance from Francis Ngannou because I think there's still a lot of upside there. And uh, I, I could see, you know, even if he doesn't close those holes in his in his game, if he wanted to stick around for the long term in, in MMA, you could definitely see him becoming like a Mark Hunt slash Brock Lesnar style figure where people are still going to tune in to watch them just because they have this one skill uh, that that is amazing to watch. And it seems like every fight will, would come down to this question, like, can you avoid that skill? So, like, even if Francis Ngannou does not evolve any more from this point, which I think he he will evolve, but even if he didn't, like, I still think he's a marketable commodity for the UFC. Yeah, I mean, and that's, uh, I think, a fair question is to ask. Like, if he's not able to close these gaps in, like, wrestling, uh, I think one of the things you actually saw in that fight was especially early on, his inexperience kind of show. Like, Stipe fighting like it is a five-round fight. Francis Ngannou was not fighting like that at all. And I don't know if that's just because he was so confident that he could take Stipe out in the first round, or if, you know, maybe he knew something we didn't and didn't trust that he had the cardio to go five rounds. Because the way he's throwing in that first round is just absolutely everything into every single punch. And Stipe did such a good job of making him miss. That really tires you out when you're throwing everything the way he was. And it was just, there was no sense of like, all right, let's, you know, keep it tight, back him up, wait till you get him against the fence and he doesn't have as many opportunities to slip away and then try to fire big. He He's had that, you know, one, like, single track focus on landing the one big power shot but he didn't have the sense of like exactly how to go about setting it up other than just to just throw 
like you're trying to kill the man every single time he gets close enough to you. And Stipe is a savvy enough guy and an experienced enough fighter that it was relatively easy for him to avoid that most of the time. And I think that's what you saw mostly was that experience gap. And he, you know, you kind of reflect on it afterwards when he says, hey, I learned more in that fight than I did in four years in MMA. And you go, oh, yeah, four years in MMA. That's not as long even as Stipe has been in the UFC. So I think that that's what you really saw there is the difference in experience and, you know, at that high level, knowing how to deal with what the other guy brings to the table. Yeah, and everybody who's been around Francis Ngannou says that he's just a sponge, that he's super intelligent, uh, that he has a really high fight IQ, and obviously he has the athleticism to back that stuff up. So I suspect that he will come away from this uh, the better fighter, that he will know what what he needs to do to get to that next level. I will tell you the two things that give me pause, though, Ben, uh, after spending time with him in Las Vegas. The first thing was, as I wrote in the story that I wrote about Francis Ngannou, uh, he's training, obviously, at that UFC Performance Institute, which uh, is clearly an enormous facility and state-of-the-art and has good coaches and all that. But his head coach still lives in France. So at least leading up to the Overeem fight, these guys were coordinating their their training camp kind of online from from opposite sides of the globe and then fernand lopez who is the is francis Ngannou's head coach and is the poor man that you see trying to hold pads for him at the open workout oh does he get hazard pay for that i hope uh he comes in the last two weeks and they hammer out the game plan and even when they were telling me about that i was like huh is that really the best way to do it and then the other thing that kind of gave me pause was that clearly francis Ngannou's first love is boxing like he grew up idolizing mike tyson uh, up to this point, his MMA game has been entirely focused on the tremendous power and the stand-up game that he has. Uh, and I wonder, like, he only got into MMA because people told him it would be easier for him to break into that world as an unknown than it would be to try to get into boxing. And I wonder if uh, a better opportunity for him will come along or that he will figure, like, I was right in the first place. This wrestling stuff is for the birds. Just give me a sport where I can punch people in the dome. And... You know, as Dana White continues to talk about getting more and more into boxing promotion, I wonder if they will they will find some common ground at some point. You think if Francis Ngannou could be a star for Zufa boxing? I'm saying if you gave him that opportunity, I think he would love it. I think he would jump at it in a heartbeat. Yeah, not, not that he will, and and like if he does soldier on with MMA, like I think that he can be very very good at it. But like. That's just one of the things creeping around in the back of my mind. Like, I think this guy actually wants to be a boxer, and and it's not unthink, uh, uh, you know, un, unimaginable that he might get that opportunity. Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned the Ngannou training at the Performance Institute, and then Dana White. It seemed like wanted to kind of second guess some of his preparations, his decisions to to go back to France for some of the training. Uh, you know, everybody wants to second guess you when you lose, uh, but. I thought I found Stipe's reaction after the fight to be very telling in a lot of ways, uh, especially because, for one thing, they go to do the thing where Dana White puts the belt around him, and he stops Dana White from doing that. Takes the belt from him, gives it to his coach, has him put the belt around him, and then says afterwards, like, hey, I respect him, he respects me. I won't go out and say, like, I don't respect Dana White or think Dana White does not respect me. But you could tell there was an edge to Stipe's post-fight remarks that really wasn't there beforehand. Like before the fight, he's playing it really close to the vest like the Stipe is going to do. You know, I talked to him a few days before the fight and kind of asked him about the whole like, hey, when you see Francis Ngannou training at the, training at the Performance Institute all the time, you see, you know, the ads are so heavily Francis Ngannou. The UFC makes really very little mention of you being about to break this record if you win. Uh, you know, what do you think about that? And it was the closest you felt like you got to like a semi 
emotional response from Stipe where he, like, I think his remark about it was like, hey, they can do whatever they want. I'm just going to be the champion, whatever. But you could tell he was just a little bit annoyed. And you saw that annoyance come out in the post-fight remarks where, you know, he's like, hey, you know, everybody's, this guy's supposed to be the next best thing. Well, guess what? I won. Guy from the Midwest, still the champion. And for Stipe, that amounts to like an emotional outburst. <laughs> you know, he you don't get much of a reaction from him at all. Seeing him just be a little bit salty is like somebody else flipping tables over and screaming at the top of his lungs. Is there like a long-term like problem here between Dana White or the UFC management or whoever in Stipe? Like, do you think he rightly or wrongly feels like he's not getting the respect that they didn't really want him to come out on top in this one? And now that he did, he's going to kind of lord it over him. Yeah, it seems like there's a, a a simmering feud, if nothing else. Like you you assume that they're going to find a way to work together, obviously, because Stipe Miocic is the heavyweight champ, uh, and I don't know that there's another place out there that that's really attractive for him to go apply his trade. So I would think that they would they would work it out. Uh, but it is obvious. It seems to me, especially like I said, hindsight being twenty twenty. If you were Stipe Miocic, how could you not feel a little bit disrespected? How could you not feel a little bit overlooked leading up to this fight? Where, as you said, you're pretty much vying to become, if you weren't already, the greatest UFC heavyweight champion of all time. Uh, and clearly, you're confident that you're going to go out there and pull off a win, and then you do it. Like, I, I don't. I think it's only human for him to be a little bit salty about it, and. Turning to the question of what the UFC can actually do with Stipe Miocic, uh, you know, it's hard from the outside looking in to know where to place all of the blame. Uh, Stipe Miocic, I feel like, is a super engaging dude. And uh, a coworker of mine, Scott Harris, had a good feature come out about Stipe Miocic on Bleacher Report this past week where he went to hang out with him outside of Cleveland at the fire station where he works. And it just made Stipe Miocic look you know, like everything you want out of the UFC heavyweight champion, like a funny guy, engaging, uh, carries on this day job, has an interesting story, and yet you get him in these media situations, and clearly uh, Miocic himself doesn't seem to really want to do a lot with them. No, he when he answers a question, he talks like his only goal is to be done talking as soon as possible. So I think like both parties have to share some of the responsibility. Like clearly we talk a lot about at the UFC's need to build new stars, how it is the promoter and its job is to kind of promote these guys. But I would say like, you know, in the defense of the UFC star making machine, like you can only make people stars if they want to be that way. And up to this point, you know, just from a media standpoint, we haven't gotten a lot from Steve Miocic, uh, which is a shame because I feel like he could be a real solid, uh, you know, mid range star for the UFC. If, if, he would let people get to know him and if the UFC would do the things that it has to do to like kind of put him out there uh, and expose him to fans. I feel like if it did that and he was willing to do it, he's like a, a, a really likable guy. Where do you think we go next here? Well, I think it all depends on El Campeon del Mundo, does it not? Cain Velasquez? El Campeon del Mundo, however, is not really ready, it seems, to even make a fight booking. Like the best you can say for him right now is that he's back in the gym. Yeah, yeah. Which is a long way from being ready to fight for a title. It's kind of your best move, though, right? If you're the UFC. Like, I don't know that anyone... Well, you don't think they throw him right back in there, right? Without, a, like, a fight between them? Well, Not... I, I mean, it's hard to say. Like, I don't know that anyone expects the UFC heavyweight title to get defended more than about twice a year. That's that's pretty much what we get. Uh, and if Cain Velasquez is going to be ready to go sometime in the fall of 2018, maybe... Like, I think that's the fight to make. I don't know that you want to throw Kane. Well, 
So this is a double-edged sword right there. Because I'm about to say, I don't know that you want to give Cain Velasquez the time to get injured again. Like, you, do you really want to give Cain Velasquez a warm-up fight? Because he goes out there and beats Fabrizio Verdum. Then maybe he's gone for another couple of years. But obviously, do you want to give him the chance to win the title also, if that's the case? Right. Because, I mean, aren't your two choices at this point, even either Verdum or Velasquez? Uh, and Verdum, we've already seen. And Velasquez is super... Uh, unreliable up to this point in terms of his ability to stay healthy. So well, that explains dive... maybe why Dana White pushing for uh, Daniel Cormier versus Stipe, which would be awesome. It would right? be, awesome. that would be amazing. But again, like that decision is, is fraught a little bit with uh, the Cormier Velasquez friendship. And if you have Miocic versus Cormier and Cormier somehow pulls off the victory there, which I think would be an upset, but at the same time, if he does it and then he just vacates the title because he doesn't want to fight Kane and doesn't want to have the belt that Kane wants, et cetera, et cetera. Heavyweight Grand Prix? You get yourself back into a classic, You almost any way you turn right now, you get yourself into a classic UFC heavyweight division situation. Heavyweight Grand Prix. Heavyweight Grand Prix. All right, let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And then we'll move on to round number two. Uh, ben, I will do my Are You Fucking Kidding Me since it's UFC 220 slash Francis Ngannou related. And that is, Ben, there was an actual predator in the crowd at UFC 220. Yep. Are you fucking kidding me? The predator is fighting and there's an actual predator in the crowd. And I will say, a pretty good predator costume. Yeah, movie that. quality. Some people might say it's a little bit on the nose, but I liked it. Uh, even Francis Ngannou, as he's coming out to fight, he kind of looked like he looked over and saw the Predator and was like, whoa, <laughs> there's an actual Predator out there. Uh, and you know what? That's something you don't visualize. When you're going through your mental preparations for the fight, you don't visualize walking out to the cage and looking over and there's a Predator you're out You're saying there. maybe that threw him off? You fucking kidding me? There's a Predator out there. You kidding me? I mean, you know what happened is that somebody... For reasons known only to them, had this Predator costume sitting around. Then they hear what's going on in Boston. You know, maybe they live in, like, New Hampshire or something. They hear that there's a UFC event in Boston where the Predator Francis Ngannou is fighting. And they're like, well, the stars have aligned. Obviously, I got to get, like, front row tickets to this shit. Where's my Fight Pass 10-minute video vignette about the Predator going to UFC 220 that ends with a sad Predator after witnessing Francis Ngannou's loss, like sitting on a bus a bus bench somewhere uh, with a 40-ounce of malt liquor just hanging his big Predator head <laughs> with how sad he is. Fucking kidding me. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, we mentioned the Heavyweight Grand Prix. There is actually a Heavyweight Grand Prix going on in Bellator. We got the first fight of it, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about that event and the, the other main event at it uh, later on in round three. But pretty much exactly what you'd expect when Chael Sonnen goes out there, gets a decision over Rampage Jackson, and then you plug all this into your Rampage Jackson algorithm, and it spits out this tweet. Win or lose, I fight like a man. Love my fans. That still rides with me. Just know I'm still not done. I felt great in there. Had a great, had great at cardio. But Chael fought a smart fight. But he also fought like a bitch. Are you fucking kidding me? I mean, of course, of course, this is a response. Also, worth noting that Rampage Jackson doing his classic: "You fought in a way to beat me, therefore you uh, somehow cheated." He did that same move right after he did his same pre-fight move, talking about what great shape he was, because he had cut something out of his diet. This time, you know what it was he cut out of his diet? It was ketchup, right? It was ketchup. It was ketchup last time, too, right? 2006. I'm sitting there in my little studio apartment reading MMA Weekly, and I read an article about how Rampage Jackson is super good shape to fight Matt Lindland. 
because he cut ketchup out of his diet. Rampage's in reruns. You fucking kidding me? Yeah, we're doing a Rampage Jackson rerun tour here. Fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? WFA, King of the Streets. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, you know who has no time for your bullshit? Daniel Cormier has no time for your bullshit. I see what you did there. I flipped it. Yeah, I think of Vulcan Ostermere, he's the no-time guy. Switcheroo. You pulled a switcheroo. Daniel Cormier, he told us beforehand he's dealing with the JV guy. Still working his like high school wrestling gimmick, which I love. Come, runs down to the octagon, pants up to his goddamn armpits, gets in there, and proves, just like he said, that Vulcan Ostermere is not on his level. But here we are, Daniel Cormier, who says now he feels like the light heavyweight champ again now that he has defended the title, which, by the way, the last time he went out there to defend it, he ended up face down on the mat. But I guess we're all supposed to pretend like that didn't even happen because of John Jones's drug test. And now we're asked to again treat Daniel Cormier as if he's the UFC light heavyweight champion, making him the best UFC light heavyweight there is. And yet it doesn't feel like that. What are we supposed to do with this? I mean, I feel like we just got to kind of revel in Daniel Cormier, man. He's 20 and 1 and 1, considering that no contest would have been 20 and 2 with that uh, knockout loss of John Jones at UFC 214. But I, I would love it as much as the next guy, if John Jones is able to clear his name, air quotes, and come back in and fight again in the UFC and avoid a lengthy suspension. Uh, I would love it if he gets himself into the weirdest trilogy of all time with Daniel Cormier, where we have a third fight between two guys where one guy is already 2-0, and o, which is kind of a a, a strange situation. Uh, but we just don't know what's going to happen. And, like, I, I kind of feel bad for Daniel Cormier, man. Like, I feel like Daniel Cormier, as I said at the top of the show, is a great light heavyweight champion. Not just a good one, a great light heavyweight champion. Yeah, I'd say he's one of the top two. He is one of the top two light heavyweights uh, not just now, but in the history of of this game, and so you know we the, this entire division is in a little on a little bit sh- shaky footing. It's been dealt kind of an unfortunate hand, but we have Daniel Cormier, and and there's nothing to not like about Daniel Cormier except for those two losses to John Jones. I agree, and in the alternate timeline where John Jones becomes a DJ during his college years and discovers like a real love of it and never, you know, again, raises his fist in anger to anyone in any sort of sitting and, you know, say whatever. He never enters the world of mixed martial arts. We're super hyped about Daniel Cormier right now because he is clearly a great fighter and would be right there as probably the greatest light heavyweight of all time, except for the other guy. And it's impossible really to just pretend that the other guy doesn't exist, especially when, there is at least this doubt about like the drug test stuff. Because the first time you say sex pill, all right, that sounds like some stupid shit John Jones would do. This time you're saying, we don't know what happened, but you even got the UFC VP of athlete performance and something out there saying like, hey, we don't think that it looks like it was an intentional use. You have that doubt plus people's desire just to kind of move past it and get the guy back in the cage. Doesn't it just seem like, we're kind of biding time here. Because now what are you going to do? You're going to do like Daniel Cormier versus Glover Teixeira? You know, you're going to do Daniel Cormier versus Alexander Gustafson too? I mean, it just seems like 
we're dealing with a a consolation reality here. Yeah, we are dealing with a situation in both of these upper weight divisions, both light heavyweight and heavyweight, uh, where there just is not a huge depth of talent. You just don't have that many two but two hundred and twenty to two hundred and seventy pound men that, that are high enough level athletes to come in and do this thing, you know, at a world class level and the level that we all want to see it, it represented at, and that is too bad. Uh, and the discussion about that leads us down a path of, of a lot of different areas in this sport, including how much the guys get paid, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and Daniel Cormier finds himself in a, in a real tough position, not only because of John Jones, but because like we talked about in the last round, the only real attractive move at this point, the only real immediately attractive move for either Daniel Cormier or Steve Miocic is to have those two dudes fight, which would be your heavyweight and light heavyweight champion squaring off, which I think makes it real easy to sell. You get to have Daniel Cormier out there carrying the bulk of the media requirements, which is something he's really good at. Uh, and then you have a, a fight between these two phenomenal athletes where there's going to be, you know, who knows if there would even be as big of a size difference between Miocic and Cormier as there was between Miocic and Ngano, you know what I mean? They're probably closer to being the same size of dude once, no. once we're not out there cutting any weight. No. Cormier is like 5'11". Yeah, but Cormier would come in at what, like 220 probably? And Stipe would come in at like 240? So you'd have a 20-pound uh, weight difference? And you know Ngano's probably cutting to get down to 265. Yeah, okay. I mean, I guess he's going to come in there like 220 like a bowling ball. Uh, but And I'm not saying like that that would not be a fight that I'd want to see. I think when you put those guys face-to-face in the little pre-fight face-off, a size difference will at least look a little bit more apparent. But, I mean, I think that is, like, a really interesting style match. It also seems like the least enthusiastic person about it is Daniel Cormier. Every single time it's brought up, it's either, you know, the Cain Velasquez thing is one thing. It also, like, when he talks about, like, how, you know, the heavyweights are just too big for him, it sounds like he just really has no interest in that fight, which, and I guess it depends, like, at this point in his career, what are his goals? Because, what is Daniel Cormier? 38? I believe he's 38. And, you know, you, he could easily have a couple more good years, and if there's no John Jones around for him to fight, then he, he fights whoever is available in the light heavyweight division. Probably some easy fights for him if he gets past somebody like Alexander Gustafson again. Uh, probably a series of easy paychecks in it. But I think that the only way for him to really ever be thought of as the greatest light heavyweight would be to fight and beat John Jones, which who knows if that's even going to be a possibility. If you're really gunning to be something special, then I think that you could talk yourself into over time, maybe I'll go up there and I'll fight Stipe. That's a huge mega fight, like one big payday. Plus, if you win it, you're a goddamn legend. And instead, if you hang around and you beat Glover Teixeira and Jimmy Manoa, you know, you make you make some good money and you stay champion for a while, but you don't really ascend to that next plane. Yeah, leading up to the Volkan Ozdemir fight, it seemed like Daniel Cormier had uh, finally embraced that idea, right? That he was just going to kind of fight the next man up because, frankly, there just wasn't a better opportunity for him. It will be interesting to see if he can talk himself uh, into the idea of fighting at heavyweight again or if he will even entertain that idea uh, because Daniel Cormier, obviously a smart and savvy guy, a guy who knows that his window is closing, a guy who you got to believe wants to make all the money that he can in the time that he has left. And again, you've got this kind of nagging friendship with Cain Velasquez where uh, clearly he doesn't want to do anything to put him crosswise with Kane. He doesn't want to, you know, put the put that that friendship on the line or, or you know, suffer any kind of damage to that friendship just because he makes a business decision. But at the same time, I feel like there is going to be 
at least some pressure on him if he feels like even entertaining the idea to have him fight Miocic. And if he doesn't, like, who knows what will happen with John Jones, but barring a Jones return and a Cormier victory, almost two Cormier victories, I feel like you have a situation where the 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 lasting view of Daniel Cormier is kind of like, man, he probably deserved better, which is kind of a shame when you when you got a guy uh, who, if he existed on any, in any other reality at any other time on any other plane, would probably be on the short list of maybe greatest MMA fighters of all time. Yeah, especially the reality where John Jones is a DJ. Just a an, dope DJ. That's an awesome DJ. Who just never buttons up his shirt. Can you imagine the finest clubs in Ithaca just going bananas for DJ JDJ? Yeah. Or whatever. DJ Johnny Bones. Anyway, you want to do tips for the well-rounded fight fan, and then we'll move on to round number three? Sure I do. Ben, what's your tip for the well-rounded fight fan? Well, knowing that I'm uh, probably wasting a lot of my breath here, I'm going to go ahead and recommend a novel. A novel by the name of Idaho by author Emily Ruskovich. Uh, now, this novel has been working its way through our friend group, uh, and one of our friends gave it to my wife, who then read it and like urgently passed it on to me to the point where like she just kept putting it on my bay. This is why. This is why you guys kept doing this to each other. And now to me, it's justified. Now I turn around and I do it to you, the well-rounded fight fan. You should get a hold of a copy of Idaho by Emily Ruskovich, and you should read that shit. Everybody says it's terrific. I have not cracked it myself yet, but uh, it's there's enough momentum building at this point where... It's inevitable. Like, I'm going to have to read it. Yep. Uh, ben, you remember perhaps even the last time we did tips for the well-rounded fight fan, I recommended uh, Crime Town. The, uh, the podcast from Gimlet Media about yeah. the history of organized crime in Providence, Rhode Island. Which I enjoyed the shit out of after you recommended it. Yeah, it's really good. Today I'm going to recommend another podcast also from Gimlet Media, uh, which frankly I found out about due to a, a listener recommendation here on the Co-Main Event Podcast. But if you like hip-hop and you like old-school hip-hop, do yourself a favor and go check out the podcast called Mogul from Gimlet Media that tells the story of former Def Jam uh, executive Chris Lighty. Uh, because it's if you want some behind-the-scenes like 90s rap trivia stuff, it's awesome for that. If you like to learn about the music business and where all, all these people come from and how they build these empires out of nothing, it's good for that. And on a personal level, it's just like a really... Uh, engaging human story. I'm not going to do any spoilers to tell you how it turns out, but uh, check out Mogul from Gimlet Media about, uh, I guess it's the tagline for the show, so I will just say, the life and death of Chris Lighty. It's a good show. Uh, as for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number three. Ben, the Red King, reigns over the Bellator welterweight division. Yep. Rory McDonald goes out there against Douglas Lima in the co-main event of Bellator 192 on Saturday night at the Forum in Inglewood, California. Wins a unanimous decision to walk away with that 170-pound title, a move that I think felt sort of inevitable since Rory McDonald signed with Bellator last year. Now he's the champ, but uh, not without a tough fight. From Douglas Lima, maybe a fight that action and adventure-wise didn't necessarily live up 
to our expectations between arguably the two best welterweight fighters over there in Bellator MMA, but nonetheless, a workmanlike performance from Rory McDonald, and he walks away with the title. Except, maybe I just used the wrong words. Maybe he didn't actually walk away with the title. Considering he was carried. He was carried out. The enormous hematoma that developed on his leg from the low kicks of Douglas Lima. Ben, why can't Rory McDonald go out here and win a fight without doing some kind of grievous bodily harm to his person? Better yet, why can't grievous bodily harm seem to have any real effect on him? Because, you know, obviously his ruined nose is going to start gushing blood at some point in a fight. That we just take as a given. And if the fight goes too much longer after that, uh, the whole place is going to look like a damn murder scene, which it did here. But then, you know, he goes out there and gets his shin completely wrecked, and he seems to be the only person not bothered by it. He seems into it, frankly. (laughs) Like, Roy McDonald seems the most excited in the wake of a fight where something terrible has happened to him. See, I always feel, with injuries like this, like where it's a huge shin hematoma, I feel like that affects people way more than, uh, you know, like a huge gash in a person's face because it's a, a type of pain that they, on a much lower level, can relate to. Because everybody has banged their shin on something at some point and had like a really bad knock to the shin and knows how much that hurts. So then they can kind of like magnify that in their own minds. It's kind of like in uh, The Revenant when Leonardo DiCaprio was attacked by a bear and he's all fucked up with bear wounds. And the part that really got me was at some point when he's trying to like pull himself out of the grave that the guy has dug for him. And you can see his hand being kind of messed up and he has to use it to drag himself across the ground. And you can be like, oh, yeah, I've had a hand. I've had like a little scrape in my hand and then had to use my hand to do things. That seems like it's awful. Like to the point where you even forget about having his back ripped open because you can't relate to that same thing with like a shin thing where you're just like oh man yeah i feel you roy i banged mine on the coffee table in the middle of the night once and i didn't even have to figure out how i was going to last through five rounds with douglas lima and but this one i mean he one of the ways he finds out how to last through him is he manages to to get on top in the final round there kind of ride some of that out but it seems like you walk out of there saying both these guys seem like they're tough as hell seemed like it was a like a bit of a slog at times in the fight but if you were trying to convince me that we're looking at two of the best and toughest welterweights out there, yeah, I say you convince me. Yeah, and like honestly, kind of a good performance for Douglas Lima, maybe for the people that had not necessarily tuned in to watch his his long run in Bellator uh, and were seeing him for one of the first times out there against Rory McDonald, a guy that we all think of as one of the best welterweight fighters in the world. Douglas Lima, though he didn't win the fight, like uh, acquitted himself nicely out there. Like you can definitely see how he was kind of a dominant force in Bellator before the arrival of Rory McDonald. Uh and frankly made things interesting down the stretch because of those those leg kicks, you know, the the fourth and fifth round, uh, both where he knocks down Rory McDonald with a low kick and then where we got into situations where clearly Rory McDonald just didn't want to stand on that damn leg anymore and just wanted to get takedowns and, and kind of stay on top and, and ride out this unanimous decision win. Like, uh, th- those were some dicey moments. There were times in this fight where you think maybe Douglas Lima is going to pull it off. Uh, of course he doesn't, but he comes out of it... Uh, you know, not necessarily sitting pretty because he lost his title, but he's not out of the equation either. If you told me uh, Bellator didn't have many other options but to run it back between Rory McDonald and Douglas Lima, I wouldn't be that mad, even though this particular fight was, at times, as you said, a slog. Well, but you know what Rory McDonald's stated plans were before this. Oh, I'm well aware. 
Do you think he's still thinking about that he wants to go up to middleweight now? That was one of the things I was wondering. Like he, because he even made noise about like wanting to fight Chael Sonnen, which a fight that you'd have to assume would happen at 205, since Chael's not getting all the way down to 185 anymore. Uh, like when you come into a fight at your natural weight class and you you hobble out uh, with a bum wheel and looking like you're growing another version of yourself out of your the side of your calf. Uh, like, I wonder if that does make you think twice. I mean, it would make a normal person think twice right, about fighting a 185-pound man. Maybe Rory McDonald feels like uh, this time he just had a real strong beer and the next time he wants to do a slammer of tequila. Like, that's how he would think about moving from <laughs> 170 to 185. A slammer, like, huh? He's just making the party even better. Okay. You know, and if you're Bellator trying to come up with fights that people are going to get really excited for and are actually going to you know, make sure to be in their seats for and watch. I think Roy McDonald moving up and wait, that's a fight you can really sell people on. I mean, Roy McDonald against like a series of uh, welterweights who people may or may not know, maybe less so. I I wonder too about, you know, they Bellator took some shit before and a little bit after this about how they structured this one where you made uh, McDonald Lima basically in the co-main event position and then had Chael Sonnen versus Rampage as the main event. And the way Bellator tried to get around it was to just have Scott Coker go up there and be like, no, these are there are two main events. We have two main events for you. These are both main events. Which, you think you're the first person to try this? <laughs> we know what's going on here. Like, that's the reason Like that there's the, the whole main event structure. It's almost like not wanting to say who is the lightweight champion. It's a lot like that. Uh, and then, you know, them kind of explaining it like, well, we want the heavyweight grand prix to stand off as its own thing like and they said that they even did that with like the production elements like they bring the house lights down they do the national anthem beforehand you want it to feel like its own thing you mean kind of like a main event feels like i mean in a way i kind of see what you're doing there where you're trying to maybe acknowledge like this heavyweight grand prix is its own weird thing not a, so not necessarily the same thing as what we're offering and the rest of the fights on the card okay i get that uh, still, it does seem like you're giving preference to that thing, right? I mean, that's that's how it feels. It does, it does, even though it was kind of a last-minute switch, right, as far as we knew. Uh, do you want to spend a couple minutes talking about Chael Sonnen versus Rampage Jackson here, and then we can, we'll close out the show? Uh, I think, as you said during your Are You Fucking Kidding Me, we all got about what we expected from the heavyweight version of Rampage Jackson. This was Chael Sonnen's, what, third fight in Bellator? Yes. I felt like we got a much better version of Chael Sonnen. Maybe it was uh, competition-related. Maybe he just looked really good going out there against uh, Q-Jack. But uh, like the, the, his previous Bellator fights against Tito Ortiz and Vanderlei Silva kind of made me feel like, oh, well, Chael Sonnen's just kind of playing out the string here of his MMA career. Against Quentin Jackson, especially for those first two rounds, Kind of looked like the old Chael Sonnen. He's out there mixing it up on the feet with that kind of awkward Team Quest style of boxing. Uh, he's landing takedowns. He's working past the guard. Uh, just kind of like a vintage Chael Sonnen performance. And then the third round, uh, things kind of slowed down a little bit. Uh, Rampage might have had his best round there. Uh, but what did you think about Chael Sonnen here, Ben? Did you feel like uh, maybe he's he's got a little bit more left in the tank than he was willing to give us in those previous two fights. Well, yeah, or maybe it just took him some time to get back into his rhythm there because he had been off for a little while before the before he came to Bellator. This is definitely the best he's looked since he has come to Bellator. Uh, I will be curious to see how this plays out for the rest of the tournament, though, because as you noted beforehand, you're looking at 
the the next like Chael Sodom will fight the winner of the fight between Fedor and Frank Mir. Either way, you're fighting a bona fide heavyweight, pretty much. Well, and especially I don't know if you saw like the some of the pictures and video from Frank Mir and Fedor staring off at uh, one of the the media day things. Frank Mir goes out there looking like he's smuggling pork chops under his t-shirt. You know he's probably going to come in there close to 265. Chael Sonnen for this one weighed in, I believe, at 222. You're looking at a different situation if you have to kind of go out there and Chael Sonnen it against Frank Mir a little bit, are you not? You definitely, definitely are, almost no matter which way this goes. If you're Bellator, though, how much are you praying to every MMA god, sacrificing idols to every MMA god that you end up with Chael versus Fedor in that second round? Because you know uh, Chael's going to make that the focus of, of the MMA world if he gets to fight Fedor. Yeah, and I mean, I think that everybody would get... I think it would generate a lot of excitement prior to the bell. I, I think that there would be a lot of interest in that one. Uh, I, it does make me wonder, though, because when Scott Coker comes out there after you know this fight and everything and talks about, like people ask him, hey, would you consider moving around the, the brackets if it ends up where you have like, you know, a huge size disparity between two of the guys. And he says, you know, he didn't say absolutely not. No way would we ever do that. Uh, but he did kind of leave the, the, he, he defended the pairings, but said like, Hey, maybe, maybe we'll take a look at it. What do you think the odds are of actually getting through some of these first round fights and ending up with those pairings as they're on paper right now? I don't know, man. Like, I kind of feel like any way this goes, if you are either Frank, Frank Mir or Matt Mitrione, you're kind of licking your chops because it's basically you and a bunch of dudes who maybe aren't heavyweights. And it's got to feel like uh, this is your tournament to win if you are those guys. And like, what, what are they going to do to shuffle the pairings? Like, would you, would you, you put Chael Sonnen out there against a smaller guy so that, uh, I mean, it seems like anyway, even if you try to engineer it, you will end up. Uh, at some point having a heavyweight fight a non-heavyweight just because you put so many damn non-heavyweights in your heavyweight tournament. Like, I don't know if you are in a better position if you reshuffle the second round and then you wind up with, say, for example, Matt Mitrione against Chael Sonnen in the finals. Like, you're still going to have to pay the piper a little bit in terms of, of like, having a, what is essentially an open weight Grand Prix. Right. But at least now we got some alternates named. Yeah. If you're Matt Mitrione or Frank Mir, like, Kind of the biggest downer that could happen to you is you get into the finals and it's like, hey, here's your opponent, Czech Congo. That's right. Right? And which Czech Congo did not get announced as an alternate until after Rampage Jackson had been eliminated. So I guess if you're Czech Congo, maybe is that the point where you start to wonder about this friendship with Rampage Jackson you got? Because if he had a one, then you don't get to work? Because Bellator doesn't seem to have a use for a lot of heavyweights other than that. Yeah, I don't know, man. You want to do uh, Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week, Ben? Sure. Ben, I'm going to do my Just Saying Stuff since it's uh, Bellator Heavyweight Tournament related. So the next matchup in this thing is Matt Mitrione against Roy Nelson, which is in February. And then I believe the next fight in the Bellator Heavyweight Grand Prix is Fedor versus Mir on April 28th. So I'm just saying, wait a second. How long is this thing going to take? Because you are a quarter of the way done with the year. And you're not even halfway done with the first round. Like, we got to have two more rounds of this thing before it finishes. We think. We hope we get two more rounds. But are we? is it going to be 2020? And President Oprah is going to attend the finals of the Bellator Grand, Heavyweight Grand Prix? Oh, I bet Oprah would love it. I'm just saying. It's a good time. Just saying. 
Well, Chad, I'm just saying we heard a little bit more uh, from Anderson Silva talking to TMZ Sports about his his whole anti-doping violation thing. Um, and this is on a story that I'm seeing on an MMA junkie where when he was asked about whether he'd ever used anything, he responded, quote, nothing, never in my life. Because first of all, my body never changed. Sometimes the problem is you use a different supplement and this happens. I'm just saying, first time it was sex juice, right? It was Thai sex juice. It wasn't like you use a different supplement. It was your argument. I got some Thai sex juice from my friend in the gym. I took it. And then I was stunned when that did not turn out to be an airtight legal defense. Now your defense is, I don't know, maybe it was a different supplement that we haven't named and that we didn't even mention we were denying until like a week went by after the failed drug test. I'm just saying kind of feels like Anderson Silva might be headed for another one of those things where he and his team show up to defend themselves against anti-doping allegations and just get their asses handed to them. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week uh, to break down all the stuff that happens at the UFC on Fox 27 featuring Ronaldo Chakare Souza against Derek Brunson. That'll be a fun one. And then we will dive right into the rest of this uh, quarter of opening quarter of 2018 and, and UFC and Bellator schedule. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Okay, so I'm saying, what about, like, say a campeon de mundo tears a labrum? Could happen. Say, maybe tears both labrums. Seems, like, uh, frighteningly, like, easy to imagine. Yeah. Maybe the whole world changes that overnight. And you think maybe Daniel Cormier feels a lot better about that potential matchup with Steve Bingham? Next thing you know, super fight. It seems to me like I have a hard time imagining.